Welcome to the Vent Room, where respiratory therapists can come and get a little inspiration. I'm your host, Dr. Tabitha Dragonberry. All right. So today we have John Incrot with us. He is a transport respiratory therapist out of Central Florida. A couple things about John. He has won the uh, Spotty Award from the AERC, which is the Air Surface Transport Specialty Practitioner of the Year in 2016. He is a webcaster and is involved in our profession overall in various ways through uh, the MBRC, AERC, and the local level of the Florida State Society. So, John, how did you end up in respiratory therapy in general? Because I feel like everybody ends up in this profession uh, a little differently. Very few of us woke up and said, oh, growing up, I want to be a respiratory therapist. So I actually wanted to, first of all, I just want to say thank you, Tabitha, for having me. This is a great honor. But first, I started out wanting to do medicine. And uh, I uh, found out early on in my college life that I really wasn't uh, buckled down enough to do that. So um, I had a really good friend whose father was a respiratory therapist, loved what he did, had a successful living at it. So I shadowed an RT uh, when I was over on the west coast of Florida where I grew up. And I thought it was a very cool profession, thought that it might be something that I wanted to pursue. And it, it seemed a little bit more specialized than nursing. So uh, that's what I did. And I have not looked back. It's been 27 years. And uh, I, I, it's like a bottle of wine. I think it gets better with every year. That, that's, that's a good analogy. So your trajectory in 27 years, I kind of like, where did you start and how did you end up where you're at now as a flight therapist and dealing with patients in critical care transport? Excellent. So I started my career on the West Coast in Bradenton, Florida, and I started at Manatee Memorial Hospital. And after a few years there, I had a, a buddy of mine there that um, had trauma experience and had worked at some of the big trauma centers here in Central Florida. So he was like, you need to head over there. So I came over to uh, Orlando in the mid 90s and worked at the trauma center here and um, eventually relocated up to Cincinnati. And uh, it was there in Cincinnati that I was able to come across some um, very well read and uh, respected professionals um, that I, I still look back on and think that they had an integral part of, of how I developed in my career. But nonetheless, was able to uh, get involved with them and um, over the 15 years that I was in Cincinnati, had a lot of experience and exposure to different parts of our profession, from critical care to sleep medicine to consulting for nursing homes. So I had a very broad um, you know, approach to what we do as RTs. So once I left Cincinnati in 2012 and came back to Central Florida, this is an area of the country, one of the areas, one of three areas in the country that we fly RTs on every single flight. So I've always enjoyed flying. It's always been a hobby of mine. I was involved in it up north uh, with the Civil Air Patrol. So we did fixed wing stuff, but had always had an interest in flying. So when I got back here, I was able to marry my profession and my passion. And um, now I'm able to do that in helicopter. So it's been quite an experience. So do you know what other two states usually always fly RTs? Yes. Uh, in, in Charlotte, it's uh, Carolina's Med Center Air, which is now, I believe, they're called Atrium Health, and but they still go by Med Center Air. And Hartford Lifestar up in Hartford, Connecticut, I believe, they still fly RTRN configuration. I mean, when you look at the transport programs around the country, um, 
RTs are a staple on a lot of NICU and PEDS flights, and that's a given, but to have an RT on every flight, adult, PEDS, and NICU, again, is very rare. And, and again, I believe those are the only three programs, ours and the other two, that, that continually do that. So... As you were saying, you know, with respiratory therapists, they are more of a staple on those NICU, PICU teams, and I've been on transport for that. So definitely, um, even with that particular team, we didn't go on all the critical care transports. We went on the ones that were more advanced. So if they thought there was respiratory issues or the patient was going to be intubated or was already on support, we would work with that. So it's really great to know that you're on a team that a respiratory therapist is going out with every adult patient that's getting treatment in the facility. Because I feel like, you know, sometimes you're bringing the ICU with you and the respiratory therapist and the nurse are the primary two at the bedside. And you know what, that's how we got started at my facility is back in the mid 80s when this program was adopted, um, the RTs were the ones that did the balloon pumps and the majority of the patients that they flew were cardiac patients. And to this day, over 40% of our patients are cardiac. But nonetheless, that's kind of how the RT got planted in that position. And you you stated it best. I mean, that's kind of what we do is we take the ICU with us. So you have a an RT who's critical care and you have an RN that's critical care and all of our RNs, RNs have an emergency or paramedic background. So they um, bring that dynamic with them. So uh, I think it's a very good part of being able to kind of merge all of our knowledge um, to take care of these very, very sick patients. And you know, and I'll tell you, I do adjunct instructor for a couple colleges that do paramedical programs. And you know, there are some fantastic paramedics out there, critical care medics, flight medics, but they have a really good niche in understanding street medicine and some of the very acute uh, emergent things that maybe we as RTs from the ICU uh, have a better grasp on the critical care nature of, you know, patients that come from that that arena. So we all certainly have our niches, and uh, we certainly think that it's worked best for us because it's been that way for 35 years. Yeah, I mean, we all have our 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 part in that role of healthcare. So you know, everybody kind of specializes into something a little different. So you got exposed in Cincinnati. You were able to advance on that. Are there any specific educational requirements that are really that somebody who's interested in transport or has that idea that they'd like to be a transport therapist is education or work requirements that they could work on now to get to that goal? Yeah, so it is it is so important for um, folks that would like to do this to get experience. And when I say experience, I mean from all avenues. I'm talking from the ER, from the ICU, um, maybe a little peds and NICU experience as well. Um, but having the experience is what's key for us. Uh, we don't necessarily, I mean, we, we are really trying to gear people towards getting the bachelor's in our profession, and I support that. But at the same time, you know, folks that come out of an associate's program that have great experience and are very well-rounded are certainly individuals that we would consider for parts or uh, spots on our team. The average experience on our team is about 17 years. So I have some nurses that have been around for 25, 30 years. And um, we have a nurse recently that's been hired who's got only about six years in the field. So we have a pretty good um, mix of characters and uh, it's, it's worked for us. It's been good. So... 
getting, you know what, another thing is too, is that a lot of our folks do instruction for American Heart are their adjunct instructors at, at uh, universities or colleges. So they stay involved. Um, also specialty credentials really help the NPS, the C, NPT, ACCS, all of those things help because it shows your commitment to the profession and it shows your commitment to learning. And just for our listeners, I mean, most of us know the NPS, the ACCS, the CNPT is actually another credential that's a certified neonatal pediatric transport that respiratory therapists are able to sit for as well. Correct. Yes. And, you know, again, my focus has always been adults. I've done adults for, you know, I would bet an 85 to 90% of my career. So I think that there are better suited candidates out there to take care of the neopeds folks. But um, yes, most of our neopeds uh, transport folks do have the CNPT. Yeah, I, I have that as well. And it was definitely one of those interesting tests because it had things that you don't normally deal with in like, at least in the Florida or the DC area where I was at, where it's like snake bites and, and things like that. So they kind of give you a whole gamut of things beyond just the standard respiratory therapy diseases we're used to. Exactly. So it's a very, it's a very well-rounded test and it's very uh, diverse, I guess, if you will. So for those people that don't know if they're interested in transport and are kind of like, it's tickling their fancy what would you suggest for them to learn or or how to figure out if it's for them or not? I, I say this a lot to people is that you can you can bring an RT or an RN out of an ICU and throw them in an aircraft environment or even in a ground unit and they will be lost. So it's understanding some of the basics of, you know, being able to work with one other person, having critical thinking skills, being able to think outside the box and always, always, always plan forward have plan A, B, C, and D ready to go because you never know what can happen up there. Having a basic knowledge of aviation will help. Is it a requirement? Not necessarily, but understanding kind of the environment and exactly uh, the, the physiological things that happen to you in an aircraft and at certain forces. And, you know, I fly backwards when I have a patient on board. So are they able to do that? There are a lot of things that uh, kind of play into uh, being successful in this environment. So getting a general understanding of that um, understanding some of the time sensitivity of the of the calls that we do. Uh, again, a lot of times RTs are not really used to uh, STEMI patients in the ER getting patients very quickly to a cath lab or the neuro patients that need to get to the OR very quickly. Um, and that's not to take away from our profession. I mean, we have some very smart people in our field, but um, you know, going to a facility to get a STEMI patient who needs to be in the cath lab within 60 minutes or you know whatever the case may be, getting RTs exposed to that is something that's new. So, I, yeah, it's it's a it's a different speed. For sure, absolutely, and doing it with one other person as opposed to being in an ICU or a med tele unit where you hit a button and the the circus shows up. I mean, you don't have that in the back of an aircraft. And to be quite honest, sometimes it's refreshing because it's just you and your partner, and you know your roles, and you help each other, and you do what's right, and you know, before you know it, your seven minute flight is over and you're landing and you have help. But at the same time, being able to gel with your partner is a very, very big key to, you know, the success of, of you in this environment. If you've been a therapist 15, 16 years, which is, again, our general uh, average experience, we know you can be a, a good RT. We know that you can think like an RT, but can you do it with one other person and can you do it? Um, in that environment? And can you all gel? And, you know, 
it, it's a small family and um, you know, we're, we kind of put the fun and dysfunctional that you, you, you have to, you know, respect each other. You have to get along, you have to work well together. And that's a part of, um, that's a huge part of this environment. If you can't do that, then you, then you won't be successful. What advice do you have for somebody? Cause I've worked in the transport environment. It's, it's a very tight, confined space. Sometimes you can't um, listen to the patient the way you want to because you're in the back of an aircraft and you have headphones on and you're needing to listen to the pilot and your partner. And how do you overcome those challenges in those tight spaces and also personalities when most people that are going into transport both have kind of like that type A personality with them? Yes, you're right. And, and, and we say that all the time that we're a bunch of type A personalities confined into one spot. But you know, at the same time, if you've gotten this far in your career and you have that experience level, uh, you should be able to be part of a cohesive team or a collaborative team, all focused on one thing, and that's the patient. So, you know, I, I know when my partner's having a bad day, they know when I'm not on my best game. And, you know, we, we kind of huddle through. That's what the whole briefing is for in the morning is to make sure that we are all on the same page. So, you know, that being said, we... Um, we certainly understand each other and overcoming some of those environmental things is huge. And that's a really great point that you bring up is because you get really used to hand signals. Uh, my partner will know sometimes when I make hand signals what I'm looking for and the same thing with him or her. If they need a drug out of the drug box or if they need the protocol book real quick to look at something, then I kind of know what they're saying without having to be vociferous. Um, you know, we can get into some very busy airspaces in Central and South Florida. And during those times, it's very critical to let the pilot concentrate and to listen to the ATC. So sometimes we have to go, uh, they can certainly mute us up front and they can isolate us in the back and we can talk all we want. But at the same time, we also need to be respective of uh, the environments and where we are. So we do use hand signals. Sometimes we'll uh, be a little bit unorthodox in how we communicate. But uh, it gets it gets the point across, and ultimately the patient gets the care they need. Those people who don't work in the transport environment, what is the typical day like? Because you know you mentioned a briefing, which they might not know what that is, and then with ATC, which is your air traffic control, right? So just even as in, um, I would say, in respiratory, we speak. You know, we speak respiratory to each other. It's its own language. I think in transport, there's some additional verbiage that comes in that you don't learn until you're in it. For sure. And, you know, that goes back to what you had asked about, you know, what's some of the generalized or basic things somebody would want or experience to have coming into this environment. And my response being, knowing a little bit about aviation, this is it. This is where it would help you is to understand a little bit of the jargon that we speak. And air traffic control is ATC for sure. The briefing is our get-together in the morning. We get together with our NEO team, our PEDS team, our pilot, our mechanic, and certainly the adult crew, and we get on the phone with our dispatcher. And we go through, you know, the first thing we talk about is what day it is, the weather. We talk about any obstacles at our facilities that send us patients, and that can go from Jacksonville, Gainesville, Tampa, down to Naples, Miami, Fort Lauderdale. So depending on if there's construction going around or if there's been spotting of cranes, right now Central Florida is a lot of growth and there's cranes everywhere and even our hospitals are growing. So we have a lot of obstacles we need to be aware about. So we discuss that as well. Um, so, and then afterwards the pilot will kind of discuss some things with us with the aircraft. And then we always have a topic of the day and that can range from safety to weather, to personalities, to 
all sorts of things that you know we we spend a few minutes talking about so that's kind of how the average day starts for all of us and then if we have charting to do we will do charting um, you know that i stay very busy with extracurricular stuff so i can work on a lot of projects we also like to follow up with our patients we had one recently who was a 34 year old guy who had a bilateral PE over a month ago. Uh, we transported him from one of our satellite campuses back to our place. He got ECMO'd and he, uh, he survived. He did very well. So, you know, we followed up with that patient and made sure that they were good and we got involved with their family. So that's something that we like to do. It kind of brings a personal side to what we do. We're not, we're not robots. We are human. We have feelings and we like to see our patients do well. So, but that's what a briefing is and kind of uh, how our typical day starts. And with that, um, I know with our facility, when we did transport, we would do follow-up letters to the physicians that um, referred patients to us and, and, and kind of give them an idea of what happened once they got there. Do you guys follow up with the facilities as well as, you know, some of the patients that you took care of? Yes, we do. As a matter of fact, as soon as we get to our facility, we will, uh, our dispatch will notify the sending facility that we made it safely. And, um, you know, most of the times we follow up if if uh, if we go to a facility and pick up another patient and we see a physician that might refer a very sick patient to us, then certainly we will follow up. Oh yeah, hey Mr. Smith, he's doing great, man. He did this, he had this done, and everything is good. Or hey, they had a cath done, they had a hundred percent occluded RCA, everything looks good, they've been stented. So yes, we will follow up with them if we see them, um, and we also follow up with our patients by sending them um, uh, questionnaires and surveys. With you're within you're working within the hospital, but you're still not necessarily primarily bedside. Do you guys work the same type of hours, or the twelve hour shifts? That is correct. Yes, so I do twelve hour day shifts. We have twelve hour shifts. We work three shifts a week. Um, my my primary role is in flight, and every now and again, I will get to the uh, ICU or into the ER and uh, be able to get you know stay dirty. Um, so, yeah, we like to, you know, if we have downtime or certainly this time of year in Florida, we have a lot of inclement weather. We can all kind of mosey into the ER and see what's up or we can go to the ICU and, uh, you know, help them with some things. So, but primarily our responsibility is uh, for flight. And each each hospital has a different configuration. I know when I was doing transport, I was still working for the department. I didn't work for the transport department themselves. And we were kind of like an on-call thing, so we were always in our uniform with pagers and just waiting for a call. So sometimes we would go out and sometimes we wouldn't. It just depended on what was going on. Yeah, so we are primarily in flight and transport. Um, I am in a completely different cost center than respiratory. Um, so if I, you know, if I picked up an extra shift in respiratory, then I would certainly clock in under their cost center. But for now... Uh, you know, we report every day, and if, um, you know, again, if we don't have a flight, we have a lot of other things that we can do, and there are days, just like in any profession, that you have downtime, and those times are welcome, because you never know, you know, when you're going to get three or four flights in a row and not get a lunch break until four in the afternoon, if at all. So, like, on one of those days that either you're super busy, or it's getting close to the end of shift, and there's a, a late call, and you're you have that STEMI patient in the ER that your next shift isn't in for. Do you guys end up staying over? How does that work? Absolutely. If it's a STEMI call or a vascular emergency or something that's very time sensitive, then we're staying over. We're going to get that patient. Um, 
If it's a critical care patient, an ICU patient, that's probably going to take a little bit of extended ground time. Um, it would be safer for us to wait for the night crew to come in as opposed to sending a day crew that's been there for 13 hours or 12 hours um, with the possibility of them having to go over um, you know, 15 or 16 hours in a day. That's just really not safe. So, you know, for some, if we get a call at, you know, 40 minutes, 50 minutes before shift change and it's down in Sebring on a patient who's ventilated coming back for ECMO, that's probably something that's going to wait till the night shift. But if it's a STEMI patient, if it's six o'clock and it's a STEMI patient that's a 15 minute flight away, we're going to get that patient. So what do you feel is the most satisfying job of being a transport therapist in the adult world? You know, I think that it's the successful outcome of patients and the collaborative effort of our team. Um, you know, I can't do my job without my nurse partner. They can't do their job without me. And ultimately, if that's the case, the patient suffers. <clears throat> so the most gratifying part of this is meeting the challenges we face every day with uh, patients that we see and seeing their successful outcomes. What do you think is the most challenging part of your role as a transport RT? Well, I think that's multifaceted. I think that there are different parts uh, that are very challenging. Um, you know, in, in the same sense that it's it's one of the most gratifying parts, one of the most challenging parts is working with one other person. Um, you know, you have some very sick patients that are very involved, and sometimes uh, in the back of your head you think, God, I wish I had two or three more people, but at the same time you think, I have all the faith in my partner that we're going to get this done. Uh, certainly the environment can be a challenge. Uh, I work in Central Florida, and anytime between June and, let's say, late October, it's a very, very hot and warm environment, so you need to be able to function in some of those very uncomfortable temperatures. We have AC in the aircraft, but you can imagine it's just a glass bubble. It doesn't really keep up as well as, as we would like it to. Uh, we would certainly like to have a 70-degree cabin <laughs> the whole time we're flying our patient, but that's just not the case. Uh, and certainly the complexity of the patients that we transport. That is also somewhat of a challenge at times. So you certainly you welcome those challenges because that's what you train for, but at the same time, they can really present some, some curveballs to you. So you need to be prepared for that. And when, since you're only working with one other person, what are some of the advanced skills that you get to apply when you're working? That's a great question. Um, you know, and again, taking the RT out of the ICU where maybe they're not used to starting IVs or they're not used to mixing drips or they're not used to, you know, priming IV tubing. Those are the things that I'll have to do sometimes. If I go get a patient that's maybe just a standard mechanically ventilated patient who's on five or six different drips, Obviously, setting up my transport vent is not very time-consuming, so I can certainly help my nurse partner, and that would be part of it. Um, plugging in some of the, uh, the drugs into our drug library or, or setting up our IVs uh, for the nurse are some of the things that we can do. So uh, we have a lot of protocols that we function under, and, and you know, while I certainly hope that the nurse knows a little bit about ventilation, I know that they hope that I know a little bit about um, you know, priming IV pumps and doing those simple things. Um, if you have to start an IV, you have to start an IV. So that's something that you need to be cross-trained in and certainly something that you will uh, be cross-trained in. And, uh, you know, besides this, this typical stuff that you would expect an RT to know, and that's airway management, airway control, ventilator management, starting arterial lines, monitoring hemodynamics, and, you know, knowing those basic critical care things that we do as RTs, also implementing some of the things that the nurses will have to do and monitor. You need to be 
you know, at least have a basic knowledge in what mechanical circulatory support is, like LVADs or ECMO or Impella. And, and we have balloon pumps here in Central Florida that we manage. So it just kind of brings a higher level of acuity to some of the things that you should know. So I know that there's a lot of um, new grads that might be listening to this or just people in the field. Like you said, your average experience on your team is 17 years. Um, do you think, what do you think is like the minimum requirement of trying to get a well-rounded base to be able to be effective in this different environment for, for a respiratory therapist? So right now we have six RTs on our team and I've talked um, exponentially with my boss about possibly bringing in a PRN RT or two. The, the, the main challenge that we face with that is keeping that RT flight competent. So it'd be very difficult to bring somebody in to keep them competent if they don't fly very much, despite their training. Um, some of the other basic things I would say is you need minimum three years, and that's, that's really probably not gonna get you in the door. I would say more close to five years of critical care experience. And again, that would include your ERs, your PACUs, your ICUs, your CVICUs, your neuro ICUs. Again, having that broad exposure to all the patients that we will see as RTs. Um, <clears throat> having a concept and knowledge of your hemodynamics, uh, knowing what drugs do what, um, you know, that's part of, you know, some of the nursing stuff that maybe everyday RTs don't really know much about, but you should. And, um, you know, the ACCS exam does cover some drug therapy and it covers some of the advanced modalities and things that we do. So, you know, again, anybody that's coming into the flight environment, you have to understand that you will be taking the patients that you see every day in the ICU now with nitric, with inhaled flow land, with balloon pumps and impellas and six drips and a peep of 18 on, you know, pressure control <clears throat> or a PRV, whatever, you will have those patients in an aircraft and it'll be you and your partner. Now, we do ECMO at our facility. We are a ELSO program and we carry a perfusionist if we go get an ECMO patient. So I'll be quite honest with you, while it certainly intrigued me, um, with the acuity of the patient that requires ECMO, I have enough duties on my own that I welcome a perfusionist at, at my side when we have these kinds of patients. So uh, yeah, but those are some of the things that, that uh, you should bring to the table if you are interested in a transport job. Taking all of those things from an ICU, putting them in an aircraft, and being able to do it with one other person. With your flight group, are you guys came certified? At the moment, we are not, and that is something that we strive for. And that is, you know, certainly if you look at some of the RT departments around the country with the Apex Award and um, you know, holding yourself to the highest standard, we do. And we are a very uh, safety-focused program, and we are part of a, a safety-focused vendor, uh, and our vendor is Metro Aviation, so we're very, very... Uh, safety oriented, but we, we do strive to be CAMES certified and that is something that we are working on. That's cool. And for listeners that don't know what CAMES is, it's, it is basically about safety that a, a program that is CAMES certified has been certified for their efforts in safety and quality management. And speaking of quality, what do you guys do within your department to measure the quality, because like as a bedside therapist and working in the department, we're always looking at how do we get valued? How do we man measure success? What's the things that you look for as a respiratory therapist in the transport world for your, is it 
you know, times on scene, times out? How does that work? That's that's a very, very great question. And and, and it does cover some of those indices as well as some others. So we'll start at the beginning. Uh, we do monitor our time off the ground. Generally, when we get a call, we like to be off the ground within 10 minutes. Are there exceptions? Absolutely. You know, if our PEDS NICU team is going somewhere, they're not getting off the ground in 10 minutes. I'm just going to tell you. Uh, they have a lot of equipment that they have to bring. Sometimes they have to bring an isolate. So we generally give them a little bit of uh, cushion. Um, <clears throat> but for our STEMI patients, our vascular patients, all of our calls that we generally go on, we're off the ground in 10 minutes. If I've got an ICU patient down at the Cleveland Clinic in Weston and they're coming back to our place, you know, for possible ECMO or an LVAD implantation, um, we're going to take a few minutes to call down there and get report because we want to kind of know what we're walking into. And even then, it's sometimes a box of chocolates. Sometimes you walk into things that you didn't expect. So um, getting off the ground sometimes will take a little bit longer in those instances. Uh, we like to, um, you know, for our STEMI patients, obviously we monitor, you know, the times that we get them to the cath lab from the time the call was taken. And certainly we have performance indicators that we monitor across the board. Intubated patients, where we go, how much time did it take us to get there? How much time did we spend at bedside? On our time sensitive patients, like vascular emergencies and STEMIs, we like to be on the ground for 15 minutes or less. On some of our ICU patients, we like to be 30 minutes or less. Is that always practical? No, it's not. And again, we strive on safety. We are going to be safe and our patients are going to be safe. So if it takes me an hour and 20 minutes at bedside to get this patient who's on an LVAD and an event stabilized and packaged up properly, then that's how long it's going to take. And we really don't get pushback for that. Again, we are you know, very focused on getting our patients here safely. They're a part of our family. It's kind of how we look at them. So we want to make sure that they are, are uh, you know, treated as such. So we have all sorts of indicators that uh, we put together at the end of the year to kind of look at where we've gone, what we've done, what our times are like. Um, we do like to follow up with some of our patients to see, kind of see kind of what their length of stay is. But these are all things that we look at and all values that uh, we measure to you know, ensure our quality and to make sure that we are doing it efficiently. And if we can do things better, then certainly we'll use that information to do that. You know, being in the Orlando area, you, you go a, a long distance. How does it, maybe a patient down in South Florida, which is maybe three, four hours by ground normally, how do they end up at your facility versus like another facility down in, in that area? I think it's reputation. Um, I think, you know, there's an accepting physician at our place and there's a sending physician from the other place. And Generally, the sending physician will know about the accepting physician, whether it's a cardiothoracic surgeon or a specialized neurologist or interventional radiologist. Generalized, generally, it's reputation-based. So you know, if we go down to Naples or if we go down to Broward and get a patient, it's generally because they're coming to our place, number one, because of our reputation and the accepting physician who's there, uh, and two, because of the services that we offer. Uh, we are a tertiary facility where we take patients in from all over the Caribbean. We take patients in from uh, South Georgia. We've gone to get patients up in Macon before. So we have a very large referral area. And again, I think bypassing some of the, you know, there are some quality centers down in Southeast Florida. You know that. You spent some time down there. There are quality centers over in Tampa and Gainesville and Jacksonville. But again, I think how we compete and how we make a difference is kind of how our reputation is based and the services that we offer. We are probably the one of the only air medical programs in the state of Florida that offers the scope that we offer. Um, we have the aircraft size to do it. We have the staff to do it. 
That's not taking away from our friends in Tampa or Melbourne or Gainesville. Uh, we know that we are in a state and in an area with some very high functioning quality air programs. But at the same time, we know that we can function at a very high level. And we take any patient, uh, uh, we offer any service that may be needed. Uh, the only thing that we don't offer at our facility is burns. And we have some friends down the street uh, that have a level one trauma center that take care of those patients. That's kind of how we get our patients, yeah. Yeah, reputation and you know good outcomes, right? Because you you want to have that the outcomes to follow. I think that's how you get your reputation. You you you. I mean, you've done this long enough, and you're at a high level that you you know, and everybody else understands that you know if you have great outcomes, you're going to have quite a reputation, and then that's when people tend to look at your facility for some of the hierarchy things. So yes, ma'am, that's correct. So can you tell me what your favorite thing about being a respiratory therapist is in your 27-year career? If you were like going to put it down to one or two things, what stands out in your mind? You know, if it, 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 this is the kind of funny thing I refer to. When I got into the field, um, the show ER was so popular and it was, it was booming. And, you know, I would come home, I worked the 3 to 11 shift and I'd tape it. And then this is kind of my geeky side coming out, but I would tape it and I'd run home and you know what, all the time, and you'd hear in these episodes, somebody call respiratory stat, call respiratory stat, somebody get stat, respiratory here stat. You know, and, and the thing is, is I had a friend say to me at one time, you know, you never sweat until the RT sweats. And that's true. I think that a lot of people look to the RT as an airway uh, experts and as an airway manager that, uh, you know, people really find a little bit of comfort or even a lot of comfort when the RT or a couple RTs are around in these really, really sticky situations and these very high acuity situations. So one of my favorite parts is that we are part of, an integral part of, a collaborative team to take care of these very sick patients. Um, I honestly don't think that you as a team can do without an RT. I think we bring a very, very broad scope of practice to the table and certainly uh, for those that are a little bit higher functioning, the knowledge base of, you know, hemodynamics and mechanical ventilation and some of the advanced things that we can do with that machine, you know, we have to understand that that machine that we utilize every day is an art and taking care of our patients and manipulating settings to each patient. You know, we can't lump everybody into one set of parameters to take care of our patients effectively. Everybody's different. So, you know, bringing that knowledge base to the bedside and taking care of a patient and seeing these really good outcomes, that's the most satisfying thing for me. You know, I love coming to work every day, and I've said this before, you know, if, if somebody said today that flight's going away tomorrow, you're no longer going to be a flight RT, we're closing down the program, I'd still love going to work every day. And I think that's the difference between, you know, having a passion for your career and having a passion for what you do. Uh, just kind of makes my job all the more, I guess, wonderful is the cheesy thing to say, but it really is. I get to go and I get to practice as a respiratory therapist in the back of a helicopter every day. I don't know where, I, I honestly don't know what else is better. I know for me, um, I look at Russ, like the, the medical team itself, like working in the ICU, I kind of look at it as a symphony and you have your doctor who's your conductor and then, you know, your respiratory therapist in whatever section you want, whether it's the, the string section, 
maybe we're the percussion ones because we like to shake it up a little bit, but the nurses can be, are, are your wins. So I feel like without everybody, right, without the dietitian, without your social workers, and if you don't have all those pieces of the team, you won't end up with that beautiful piece of music at the end. I think that's a really good analogy. Yeah. And, you know, you could, if you, if you wanted to liken it to that, then maybe we have a solo, you know, maybe we have a solo where we take our ventilator and we do really cool things with it and we can really affect patient outcomes with it. So yeah, I like that analogy. That's a good point. I know that sometimes like there's therapists out there that say that they don't feel respected or appreciated in their profession, right? What's your advice for those therapists in trying to find or get where they, they're happy to go to work every day? I've, I've said this before, Tabitha, many times, and I've said it to students too, is that this profession, and like any profession, is a return on investment. And what you put into it is what you're going to get out of it. So if you go into your department every day and you do the status quo by drinking your coffee, throwing out a couple nebs, doing ventilator assessments, and calling it a, a you know, hey, I've just been working for an hour and a half, I'm going to sit for the next two hours, it's not getting it done. That's not who we want to be as a profession. That's not who I want to be as a professional. So I'm always, you know, prior to, you know, even now I say visible, but prior to getting this position, in the ICU, you'd be visible, you'd be in rounds, you'd be at the bedside, you'd help nurses, you'd answer questions, you would educate, you know, participate, be a part of it. Because otherwise, you're going to get pushed to the side. And then that's when you have the disgruntled, disappointed therapist or the disappointed people because, well, now nursing's doing this. Well, nursing's doing that. Well, well, why? Why is nursing doing that? Why don't you do that? Why don't you step up and say, I can take care of that. Let me help you with that. I can do that. And I also like to tell people to, to get involved. If you, if you have an opportunity to become an ACLS instructor, become a BLS instructor or a PALS instructor, because now you bring something to the table, right? Now you're visible because everybody's going to rotate through there, especially if you have a PEDS team or an ICU team or an adult team. Everybody in the hospital is going to rotate through PALS, ACLS, and NRP, and you as the RT get to highlight what we do. So that is exposure. That's visibility. And that just kind of expands on who we are as a profession, that, that gets us out there. Um, you know, talking to some of our other colleagues that you know, I mean, we – have done ourselves, I think, a disservice on some level in that we are not visible in some of our high school populations because you really need to get these folks involved at a young age and get them interested in what we do because then that just translates into, you know, a very satisfied, happy profession. So I like to get people involved, stay involved, be active in your state societies, be active in the AARC. Um, I know that there are people out there that will poo-poo that because what have they done for me lately? I don't, if you have to ask that question, then you don't know. And I think that that's an opportunity for someone who has to ask that question to educate themselves on exactly who and what the AARC does for us as a profession and even what your state society does for you. And I think it's very important. And I, I think for me, one of the, my favorite things about being an AARC member and when I do get the opportunity to go, um, you know, not only is it the CEUs that you can get online, but when I get to go to the conference, I feel like conference time revitalizes you. So like you you get towards that end of the year and you've had a rough year or whatnot, and you connect with other people like-minded where you're getting to expand and see the latest research and connect with friends. That's how we met was through the AARC. So 
making friends, connecting friends. And I think finding those like-minded friends keeps you on track, right? You know, when you, when you know more, when you find a ton of respiratory therapists working across the country that love their jobs, it makes it easier as you find challenges to, to reach and say, Hey, how are you guys doing it? And, and that's making it successful. Yep. You know, and it, I don't know if it's appropriate to name drop on this presentation, but, um, yeah, I met you at AARC. I've met some phenomenal people, uh, through the AARC and they just raise the bar, I think. And, you know, I've always been, uh, you know, when I was in Cincinnati, my, the, the people that I came across were Rich Branson and J. Joe Hannigman and Bob Campbell and those guys and had such a profound effect on, you know, my outlook on the profession. And, you know, Rich obviously uh, needs no explanation of where he is and who he is, but just kind of seeing what they did and how involved they were just kind of stepped up my game a little bit. And it's always made me want to strive to not only promote the profession, but what we do. Um, and now certainly I've met you and, and, you know, again, all those professionals that kind of have raised the bar and have um, made such a place for us uh, as a profession that I, I, I would not look back. I, I just want to continue to look forward and kind of continue to raise the bar for others. Um, you know, AARC, even your state meetings and other meetings, it's a great networking opportunity and it allows you to meet these people that kind of share the same passion that you do. And that's huge. I, I agree with you. Well, I thank you for your time. It was great to, to get to talk to you across the world, right? Um, and, and keeping that connection. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I, I, we are kind of across the world, but um, I, I am so appreciative that you had me on and uh, we were able to kind of discuss this passion for our profession. And I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Thanks.